You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Amen. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, as you heard from the scripture, we're going to continue to be in 1 Corinthians. We've been continuing our, we've been doing a study on 1 Corinthians since about August. So we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 14 uh, today. Uh, this is one of the passage that is, passages that is more challenging, very highly uh, debated. Uh, today will be a little bit different, just to give you a heads up. You can't, we probably need to look at today's sermon and next week's sermon as a two-part sermon. It's kind of one sermon. We're going to be in chapter 14. We're going to have to do a lot of teaching today, a lot of in, instruction, just to make sure that we're on uh, the same page. So to catch us back up, I know last week uh, Pastor James White came and killed it. All of y'all wanted him to preach more. It's not going to happen, all right? You got me. You're going to have to deal with me. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, dealing with the things that the Holy Spirit does. Paul gets there in chapter 12. We, talk, we spent two weeks in chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts, about how the Holy Spirit chooses who gets the different gifts of the Spirit, and that they're actually manifestations of the Holy Spirit, that they are how he reveals himself for the edification, for the encouragement of the church. Then chapter 13, Paul seems to change subjects, but he's actually still in the same subject where he's talking about love. We talked about the word agape and how it's different from how we often understand love, right? We have one word for love. We use the same word to describe how we feel about tacos as how God feels about us, right? Completely different things. God's love for us is steadfast no matter what. And he was encouraging, Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to love each other with a self-sacrificial love. See, the Corinthians, with all, this, uh, the, with all the spiritual gifts that were present uh, in their worship and, and just in their, in their body, they began to kind of create these different classes of Christians based on spiritual giftings, right? So for some, if you spoke in, spoke in tongues or maybe prophesied or, or whatever, then you were, you were kind of seen as like the real elite Christians. Everybody else is like JV, but you're, you're varsity, right? Everyone else is, like a, is to be looked down on because they don't have the spiritual gifting that you have. So the Holy Spirit comes in to unite the church gives different spiritual gifts for the purpose of harmony and unity in the church, but they twisted it uh, because, of the, because of their sinful nature and used it as a means of division within the church. So Paul calls them to love. He calls them to this idea of agape, this self-sacrificial love, and that their gifts were just an outflowing of that type of love. This week we'll be in chapter 14. Again, you should kind of look at this sermon and next week's sermon as a two-part. So if you're here today, make sure you're with us next week, if at all possible. I think everything's going to come together because we can't get to everything that we need to get into today. But before we even read chapter 14, I want to make sure uh, we understand a theme in the Bible that's just picking up in chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians that's really been going on since the first chapter of the Bible. One of the, the big problems I think we have in studying the Bible is we, we understand each section as if it's within a vacuum and as if there's not a context of the fuller narrative of the Bible. And so sometimes we don't really grasp the weight of what's going on in the individual passages because we don't understand that this is a theme that's been running through the Bible since the first chapter. So I want to try to make sure we understand what we're actually getting into and what theme is being picked up on in this chapter specifically that has really been playing out in the greater narrative of the Bible. The theme I want to, I want to pick up on in the Bible is words. Our words, God's words. 
The Bible talks about words being very important. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. I know many people take that scripture out of context and actually take it to say that we as, as people, as believers, as followers of God, can actually speak things into existence. That's not actually what it's saying. That's actually nowhere in the Bible does it say that, that believers or followers of God can do that. God can do that, obviously. His words create and are very powerful. But even, even though it's not saying that, we already know that words are extremely, extremely powerful. You can change someone's day. Some of you may have changed someone's day just by the way that you spoke to them and maybe encouraged them already. Words can bring comfort to the suffering, encouragement to those of us who are discouraged, joy in times of hopelessness and sadness. Words can communicate love to those who feel unloved or even unlovable. Words can instruct us. They can guide us. They can correct us. Words can cause harm. Words can cause fear. Words can start fights, start wars, even Many of us in the room, our lives have been marked in many ways by words that we heard from somebody 20, 30 years ago. We remember exactly what they said, when they said it, how we felt when it was said, positive and negative. It might be a word that was very affirming to you, and now you remember that and you hold on to that, and you find strength there. Or maybe it was a word that was harmful, that was negative, that was painful to you, that has, that has ever since that point shaped the way you view yourself. Our words are powerful. James chapter 3, verse 5 says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is saying that even though the tongue is very small, and even though our words may seem very small, he says your words are like fire. You know how fire is. Fire, fire can, can, can bring warmth and comfort inside of a home. Fire can sustain life. Or fire can be as destructive as anything else on the planet. It can burn down massive amounts of land. It can burn down homes. It can cause destruction and death. James says words are like fire. Yesterday, I officiated a wedding. And, you know, there's that point in the moment where you have the bride and the groom face each other and they recite their vows to each other. And even though I was giving them the words to say and they were repeating after me, it was a powerful moment for me. Right, Like I'm reading the words, but hearing them say those words to each other, make that commitment to each other, it was a powerful, powerful time that impacted me more deeply than I expected going in. And at the same time, if that couple were to use their words in destructive ways right now or any other day of their marriage, those words can be equally as powerful to break down and destroy the marriage as well. We know words are powerful. We obviously believe that as a church. That's part of the reason why we do a quite a few different things uh, as far as elements in the services that we have. But at, at, in the middle of it, everything is centered around the proclaimed word of God. 35, 40 minutes or so is just going to be, generally speaking, it's going to be me, everyone else being quiet for the most part, and one person speaking and proclaiming the word of God because we know that words are powerful. God has used words to communicate who he is, to reveal himself to the world since the world began. Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking. Before you see God doing anything else, he does a lot of stuff in the Bible. Before you see him doing anything else, he is speaking. He tells a creation to exist. He forms it with his words. Many times when God wants to act, I would say the majority of time when God wants to act in the, world, in the Bible, 
As we see it in the word of God, he speaks himself or he calls somebody else and he speaks to them. Any story, anytime you see God saving, generally speaking, there is somebody who, who is speaking for God or God is speaking directly to a group of people that brought that about. You see this in Exodus. Before Moses goes in to, to rescue God's people from slavery in Egypt, God goes to Moses in the burning bush, speaks to Moses, and then, says, and then, Moses says, and then he tells Moses the message he's going to give. And Moses says, God, I don't even speak that well. I'm not that eloquent. He said, I'll be with your mouth are his words. Don't even worry about it. I'm going to speak through you. Moses still doubts himself. So then he calls Aaron. And he says, okay, well, you talk to Aaron. Aaron can talk well. I'll have him talk to the people. He said, I'm going to do this through my words, and I'll be with your mouth. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see prophet after prophet after prophet. A prophet is simply someone who is speaking the words of God, and he uses this to shape and direct his people and make himself known to them. God's words are extremely powerful and effective. Psalm chapter 119, verse 11, the psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the word of God, it doesn't just create the things that we see outwardly in the world. The word of God, when stored up and embraced in our heart, actually changes and transforms us. His words are extremely important. You, have, you, you do not own a material possession that is more important than the words of God. You own nothing more important, more impactful. There is nothing that our world needs. Hear me when I say this. There is nothing that our world needs more than God revealing himself to the world. And the primary way he chooses to do that is through his word. The Bible teaches us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Someone's words are an expression of who they are. Deep in here, your words will always reveal who you are. I know a lot of people have a lot of pushback to that, and they'll say, well, actually, actions speak louder than words, so if somebody says something and does something else, their actions really reveal who they are. I'd say no. If they spoke something and told you and it was a lie, their words are still revealing that they're a liar. You just haven't seen it yet. Deep down in their hearts, their words are revealing that they're a liar. They, they, they don't operate in truth on a consistent basis. Your words always reveal who you are. God is always, always about revealing who he is to his people, to the people that he created, and he does it primarily through his words. I want us to feel the weightiness, the importance of God's word and God's words. We see this in the Old Testament, but also we see it in the New Testament as well. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the beginning of the verse, John is describing Jesus when he came onto the scene here on earth. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever considered why is Jesus called the word? Why is he called the word? Because our words express who we are. And he's saying that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God. He is the word of God. He's the, he is the ultimate way that God reveals himself to us. And thus he is called the word of God. This is how God expresses himself, reveals himself primarily to humanity. There is nothing more beneficial or transformative than God's words. All that to say this, throughout the Bible, words, especially God's words, are a huge theme. It is paramount and essential for our souls that we listen to, that we, that we embrace, that we cherish, that we cling to 
the words of God in our hearts, that we take heed to his words, that we obey his words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we see spiritual gifts that involve the very words of God. We see spiritual gifts that involve God speaking through his people to give his people his words in a very supernatural way. Let's work through verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Starts off with, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Excuse me. Just like in chapter 12, if you were with us, the first sermon I did on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that word spiritual gifts there, the, the, the Greek word charisma is not in this verse, in the original text. It's, it's a word, I'm not 100% sure how to announce it. It's like uh, pneumatikos, something that I think the word pneuma means spirit. That, that addition on the end of it likely means things involving the spirit or things that the spirit does. Now, he's talking about spiritual gifts specifically, but just understand what Paul is saying is pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts or the thing that the spirit does, the things that the spirit does, how, how he operates, what he's all about. He's saying, I want you to eagerly desire this. Eagerly desire this. If you continue on, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Again, as I said a little bit earlier, the Corinthians, they had this, this issue specifically seemingly uh, based on this, this letter and how Paul responds to them, seemingly this infatuation with speaking in tongues. That, that, that it meant that you were this, some elevated form of, of Christian. You, you were at a higher status. You were more spiritual, more mature. You should be esteemed higher than other Christians. And Paul is letting them know, hey, you're elevating tongues too much. Prophecy is actually better, Paul says. All right, I think that means we've got, we got to answer a few questions. First question, what is prophecy? When someone gives a message from God to a person or group of people, it's as simple as I can state it. When, a, when someone gives a message that is directly from God to a person or a group of people, when someone gives a message from God to a person or group of people, many people believe that prophecy is, is just telling the future, right? For some reason, people have confused what prophecy actually is with someone who can just predict the future and what's going to happen to, to the future. That's a very narrow scope of, of prophecy. Prophecy in the Old Testament definitely includes that. It definitely talks about the future, but prophets also talked about the past and what God had done for his people up to that point. The prophecy also instructed in the present, this is how we are to live. Prophecy was very broad as far as the time spectrum that was included. We see these words from the Lord in the Old Testament given to encourage, rebuke, correct, and empower the people of God to live as God has called us to live. Now, prophecy takes simple forms. What I gave was about as simple of a definition. It might be oversimplified that I can, that I can give. Prophecy took a, a couple, at least a couple different forms in the Old Testament. So you got guys who their names are, are books of the Bible because they wrote certain books as prophets, right? So you got Jeremiah, you got Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, you got those guys, Obadiah, Jonah. Those guys, when they spoke, when they spoke in the office of a prophet, you could write it down in the Bible. Right, this is directly from God. It's infallible. There's, there's not one single error in it. They will often end by saying, thus saith the Lord. Right, they're saying, these are God's words. These are not my words that are being spoken to you at this point. 100% inspired by God. But this wasn't 
actually the only type of Old Testament prophecy. I don't have time to get into it right, right now. If you want to write these chapters down that you can go to, 1 Samuel 19 seems to refer to a school of prophets. Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, right? So 1 and 2 Samuel, um, likely mostly written by him. So Samuel was a prophet at that time, but there's this interaction in that chapter where, where Paul meets with these, these other prophets that are like around Samuel that he seems to be training up. We don't know any of their names. It talks about them prophesying. We don't know exactly what they do, what they did, what they said. It says that they were prophesying. It was not written down in the Bible. It seems to be a, another layer, maybe a school of prophets. You see the same thing, 2 Kings chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 4. You see these, uh, they call them the sons of the prophets. They seem to, to stay together in the same group. You see them interacting with Elijah and Elisha, who are the prophets of the time. So at that time, Elijah and Elisha were the guys. If God wanted to say something specifically to his people, it was first Elijah, then he passed the mantle on to Elisha. But at the same time, there were these other prophets that were around that God spoke through as well. I think it's important that we have more than one category for prophecy, that we have the, when this person speaks in this office as a prophet, so maybe we should think about it in terms of office and gifting. So when this person spoke in the office as a prophet, you could write it down in the Bible. It is God's word. It is infallible. Don't change a word of it and save it for the rest of all human history, right? That's number one. Number two is are these other prophets who seem to be gifted but not, my assumption would be not speaking the infallible words as they were growing in this gifting of prophecy. Second question that we get from the passage, I think, what is the gift of tongues? What is the gift of tongues? I'm going to try to explain it. Also, just as a heads up, um, a lot of you, I think your primary question is, okay, all this makes sense, but what about what we're we going to be doing up in here on Sundays going forward? I know it's a lot of y'all questions. We'll get to that next week. Come back. All right, so simply put, it's when the Holy Spirit gives the ability to speak in a language, or sorry, gives someone the ability to speak in a language that they do not understand. Simply put, tongues is when the Holy Spirit gives someone the ability to speak in a language that they do not understand. Biblically, you can see this, uh, the way Paul talks about it uh, in chapter 12 and chapter 14, it it seems like at times it's someone praying. He talks about singing, what he calls singing in the Spirit compared to singing in his understanding. He also uses this at times, as we'll get to in a little bit, to, to when there is someone who can interpret the tongue to kind of speak and prophesy to a group of people, some form of prophetic message. Let's read three through five. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, and the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Paul tells them when they come together, prophecy obviously is actually better than speaking in tongues. So the Corinthians, it's very easy to notice that love was not, agape love was not their primary motivating factor, right? They're coming together. Apparently, you have a lot of people speaking in tongues at different times. They also apparently have the gift of prophecy that is present in the church, but they're leaning more into tongues than into prophecy when it's obvious that prophecy would be better and more beneficial for the church. It almost seems like, why would Paul even have to explain this to them? And it's because their idea, the way that they function within the spiritual gifts was not based on love, but it was based on them trying to gain some type of status within the church. 
If tongues is seen as a more spiritual gift, right, but only for those who are, who are more holy, more mature, more spiritual, then it makes sense that they will be speaking in tongues, even though nobody can understand what's going on. Even if a visitor walks in, as we'll talk about next week, who doesn't understand what they're doing, they're still speaking in tongues when prophecy and the gift of prophecy is present. It's obvious their use of their gifts wasn't motivated by love. Motivated by some desire for maybe self-elevation for others to see them as more spiritual than they actually were. There was the gift of prophecy for the encouragement of the congregation. The Holy Spirit, God himself, just to understand that the gift of prophecy that was there, God himself was wanting to reveal himself to the people that were there would speak through some of the prophets that were there, some who had the gift of prophecy that were there. I don't, I don't believe uh, that they necessarily had someone there who was in the office of a prophet, based on my understanding. But still, God was wanting to give messages to his people, but they had a lot of chaos and confusion because of all the speaking in tongues. So busy trying to be seen as spiritual. So busy trying to gain the esteem of maybe other Christians who were present. They cared more about that than they cared about God's word actually being brought to the people. Their attempts at being seen as spiritually mature actually revealed their immaturity, right? It actually revealed how immature they actually were. Anytime we, we, we do specific things just to try to reveal, just to get someone else to believe that we're actually spiritually mature, it actually reveals our immaturity. It, it, as we try to, to help people understand I'm actually more connected with God than, than other people are, it actually reveals how, how immature and insecure we actually are. If you understand, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, you have the highest status from a spiritual standpoint that any person could possibly have. You've been saved from sin, redeemed, brought into the kingdom of God. You are now a child of God who created the universe. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies with him, and we will reign with him forever. And you're trying to grow in your spiritual status? And you're trying to get someone to think more highly of you as a Christian and think that you're even more spiritual? He has already given us the ultimate spiritual status. What the Christians, the Corinthians, because of their immaturity, thought that there was still something to be gained from others seeing them as more spiritual than other people. It reveals immaturity. It reveals you don't understand the love of God. That you don't understand the grace that has already been given to you. The fact that you believe you have to earn now some type of status through the gifting that you have. Now, if you're in tune with the list of things that Christians like to debate about across denominational lines, this one's pretty high up there, right? Like this one's pretty high on your list. I know that we have people in our church that have had some negative experiences uh, with people operating in these specific spiritual gifts, especially speaking in tongues and probably prophecy as well. I know if I had people raise their hands, there would be some people that say, yeah, I had some pretty negative experiences with that. And also, if we ask people to raise their hands about it, some would say, I actually have had some very positive and encouraging experiences with these spiritual gifts as well. So we have some people in our church who would probably say that I don't believe that, those, that the gift of tongues can, continues to exist. And we have some people in our church who would definitely say, no, I speak in tongues now. So how do we navigate this space together with God's Word? I remember, man, we probably 10, 15 years ago now, uh, there was a young woman I was friends with and was wanting to get her plugged into a church. She was interested in Christianity, wasn't a Christian at the time. And a friend of mine invited her to her church. 
And I was excited. She was going. I was like, this is great. Came back, asked her about her experience. She said, Aunt, I was terrified. She said, I got there and people were speaking in a language that I didn't understand. And people were, were doing, it was so much movement and so loud. I literally had no idea what was going on. She said, I'm never going back. Don't, don't tell me to go back. And then from then on, as we continued to invite her to other churches, she was like, no, nah, I'm good. No, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm okay. Heard a story recently about actually a, a pastor and his wife who had gotten in contact with a realtor and they were looking to, to purchase a home. And they told the realtor, yes, this is what we want. Uh, said, we're making the offer. Uh, the offer was made and accepted and they're moving forward with the contract. And then uh, when it was about time to close on the home, they go to the realtor and say, uh, excuse me, I don't know what happened, uh, but uh, we prayed about this home. We felt like God had told us that this home was for us. And we didn't really have the money for it, but we were trusting God that he was going to provide the money. But now we got to back out from the deal because the money is not there. Because we don't have the money to, to purchase the home. So God had spoken to us and given us this, but the money's not there. I can tell you other stories. When I was growing up, uh, right before I moved to Columbia, uh, I remember uh, in, in the church, the men in the, in the church were having just a time of worship uh, together on a Sunday afternoon. And I remember my dad coming up to me afterwards. I'm sorry, not afterwards, towards the end of, of the, uh, the worship service that we were having. Uh, he, he just came to me. He said, Aunt, I don't really know exactly what this means, uh, but in Columbia, you're going to be a leader among your peers. That's what he said. He said, the Lord just told me, I'm just letting you know. I don't know exactly what that means, but you'll be a leader among your peers. At that point, at, at this point, that might seem obvious to you. At that point, I had, had no formal leadership in any type of church or Christian ministry of any kind at that point. And he said, you're going to be a leader amongst your peers. I've, I've held on to that since then. It has helped guide me through different decisions and opportunities that the Lord had opened up to me since then. I'll give you another story. Uh, when I first came around Midtown, this was 2009. So this was, there was only one Midtown church. It's currently called Midtown Downtown. It was just Midtown Fellowship at that point. I was coming around, liking what was going on. Some of the friends were coming around. And I remember, uh, I have to assume that it was a vision. It felt like a daydream to me. I remember seeing myself preaching from a stage at Midtown. I was not a member. I just started visiting. I just saw it after. I was like, I don't know, I don't know what that was. Uh, my wife and I started dating. My wife and I started dating. And she came to me one day. She was like, Aunt, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to do with this. Um, I saw you preaching from Midtown State, so you can do whatever you do whatever you want to do with that. I'm just letting you know. We weren't married. We were just dating. She was like, I saw you preaching from a Midtown stage. Do whatever you want to do. And I was like, wow. and I put a ring on it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, I'm married. I mean, it's just like, we, 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 got, we got to do this. We got to do this. Uh, I guess get you one that can prophesy. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know what to say. I was talking to a pastor last week. He said he met another pastor about a year and a half ago, and somehow they exchanged numbers. He wasn't sure why to do one of his numbers. He got, got the guy's number, exchanged numbers. Didn't talk for a year. No contact. Out of the blue. Dude calls him up and it's like, hey, man, I don't know uh, what this is, but I feel like I'm supposed to invite you to this breakfast of pastors. So this pastor that I'm talking about, he's, he's a black pastor, I think early 40s. He said, you're not going to know anybody there. All the pastors are white. They're going to be way older than you. I don't know, man. You're, you're supposed to come, so just come. Uh, and then dude went and told his wife, he's like, yeah, I ain't going. Uh, no way I'm going to that. And then he prayed about it, and he said he felt like the Lord was telling him to go. So he went, 
went to this breakfast meeting. I think about eight pastors in the room. There's another pastor sitting directly across from him. Uh, he's the only black guy in the room. Another pastor sitting directly across from him, just staring at him the whole time, just staring at him. In- internally, he's like, dude, I, I know I'm, only, I'm the only black guy here. Like, you don't have to stare at me. Everyone is already aware that that is what's going on. You don't have to do this. Dude just kept staring at him. Afterwards, dude came up to him. He was like, hey, uh, I feel like we need to like, meet up and talk. Here's my number. All right, so he gets the second pastor's number uh, that is there, and he leaves. Ten minutes later, dude calls him up. He's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I just I feel like we need to talk right now. Can you come over to our church uh, where we are at our church building? So he's like, sure, whatever. I'll do it. So he went. And the guy's like walking around the building and all that stuff, talking to him, sharing him about the ministry and about the church and all that. And then, and then they get back to the guy's office who, whose building that they're in. And he says, you're the one. You're the one. And the guy's like, the one what? Would you like to clarify? He said, about a year and a half ago, their church had been in decline for a while. They had a, oh God, like four acres of land. Uh, thousand square feet building and all that, but the church had been in decline. They weren't using it anymore. He said as their elders came together to pray, they just felt like the Lord was saying, we need to give this building away. And so he said, when you walked into that meeting, he said, I've never felt like I've heard the audible voice of the Lord before, but I'm telling you, it was clear as day. And he told me, you're the one, so we're going to give you this building. So you can have this building. The obvious moral of this story is, whichever one of y'all ain't invited me to that breakfast yet, I don't know what you're waiting on. I don't know what you're waiting on. You're quenching the Holy Spirit, and I don't like it. You need to be rebuked in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be rebuked. There are two major categories uh, that I kind of introduced already. I want to give terms for them that people tend to fall in when it comes to spiritual gifts, specifically the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy. Two, two major categories. If you don't like this terminology, you don't have to use it. Uh, one is a cessationist. Cessationist is someone that believes the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues do not exist today. Cessationist is someone who believes the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues do not exist today. Cessationists will often reference Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 that reads, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So he's saying in the Old Testament, God used prophets and there was prophecy. But now Jesus has come. He is the word of God. And when God wants to speak to his people, he does that through Jesus. We already have Jesus, so we don't have prophets anymore. They would say prophecy was finished when the Bible was finished, when the canon was closed and the last book of the Bible was written, that there's no more prophecy, no more word from God. Everything that we need to hear from God has already been written in the Bible. They will say that previous to that, so in the time of the Corinthian church, there was no New Testament. So anytime God wanted to give a specific word to the New Testament believers, then he would, he would use prophets at that point, but then afterwards, you know, after the Bible was written, then there's no more need for it. They would also reference 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, not, not some, I mean, not all. Some would probably reference this verse. Uh, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty Work. So uh, apostles at that time, in order to be called an apostle, you had to have had an in-person encounter with Jesus. You, you had to have had received revelation directly from Jesus in person, not like in your mind, not like when you're praying, but like in person. Right. So you always got the 12 disciples down to 11 
because of Judas, Judas and what happened to him. But then Paul, if you remember, on the way to Damascus, Jesus came directly to him to the point where he fell off his horse, blinded him, and then called him to be a missionary and be a witness for Christ as Paul was going to kill Christians. So Paul would have been known as an apostle because of that encounter with Jesus that he had and the revelation from Jesus that he received at that point. So many who are cessationists would say, hey, a lot of the, the gifts that we're talking about here ended after the apostles because that was actually a sign, excuse me, of being an apostle. And even if you follow the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll notice uh, is a lot of times the miracles are done by the apostles. And, and specifically, when the apostles go to a new land, you generally see more miracles as, a, as, as what is believed by many to be a validation of their apostleship and that they actually hold that office. Paul states that the, some, that the signs and wonders and mighty works are signs of an apostle. What I want to try to do with uh, cessationists and also what I'll call continuous in a second is also share what I think are some common pitfalls for people who fall in, this, in, in, in these lanes. Now, I believe that there are spiritually mature, Holy Spirit-filled believers that land in both of these camps. I'll be honest with you. I, I do 100% believe that. Here's my beef with some cessationists, my pushback. I would think there was, among cessationists that I know, I believe there is a oftentimes unwillingness to be open to God doing anything miraculous. I would say oftentimes a hesitation to ask God for miraculous healings, blessings, etc., or anything like that. I would say when they see people using different gifts from the Holy Spirit, when they see people using different gifts of the Holy Spirit in ways that are different from the way the Bible explains them, they will say, see, I told you it's not real because they're not doing it in the way that the Bible says you're supposed to do it, so it can't be real. Right? To which I would say, I hear what you're saying, but the, really, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are the only times we see any type of instruction on how to use the gifts of tongue, and it was used to, to talk to a group of people who were doing it wrong. Does that make sense? So the argument that they can't exist now because the way I see people doing it is wrong doesn't actually hold weight from a biblical standpoint because the only time it's actually explained in the Bible is when people are doing it wrong and using the gift in a way that is actually wrong, which is the case with the Corinthians. At the same time, I do want to emphasize, I do believe that there are spirit-filled people, I would say solid Christians, good, effective leaders in the church that land on both sides of this. And there are some you have who are what we call continuous. Y'all might call them charismatics. I'm going to say continuous. A continuous is someone that believes that all of the spiritual gifts still exist today. Someone who believes that all of the spiritual gifts still exist today. Continuous often will say that spiritual gifts, they're biblical, just like everything else in the Bible. Like, how are you just going to say you're going to throw it out? Not only that, but Paul says in chapter 12, verse 31, and in the first verse of chapter 14, which we read earlier, we won't go there now, but he says to desire the gifts. Many would also say, you know, just from an experiential standpoint, how are you going to say to me this isn't real when this is something that I have experienced and been encouraged by and the Holy Spirit has used in my life? Some continuous who study history and Christian history, will potentially quote Justin Martyr, who was a father and a leader in the church in A.D. 160, right? So this would have been after Jesus, after all the apostles. He's quoted to have, have said, for the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time. Now, I have beef with some continuous as well. I have issues with some continuous, not all. Uh, one would be using gifts in a way that's not biblical. 
We'll get into this more next week. A lot of speaking in tongues without an interpreter being present in a corporate gathering like this one. I see a lot of people saying they're prophesying, but their prophecy doesn't line up with the Bible. Right? The nature, the tendency, the patterns in the prophecy don't line up with the, what I see in, in, the, in the biblical pattern for prophecy. I see a lot of prophecy that's all about the, the material things that you're going to get, the amount of success that you're going to have. I don't know what prophet books you're reading in the Old Testament. That's not what they're talking about. That, that was not the primary message of any Old Testament prophet, of any prophet in the Bible. So I have issues when I see many using the term prophecy to describe something that is not in line with what I see as the pattern for biblical prophecy. I want to I have a beef with some cessationists who, who tend to equate, like the Corinthians, a spiritual gifting with spiritual maturity. Like the presence of this specific gift means that you are more mature. I've said it before, the, the maturity of the Christian is not determined by the presence of the spiritual gift, but by the presence, or not determined by the, the gifts of the Spirit, but by the fruit of the Spirit. The maturity for, for Christians is not about the gifts of the Spirit and the presence of those. We see that with the Corinthian church. Paul didn't call them worldly about three times already in this letter, and yet it seems like they had more spiritual gifts operating than any other New Testament church as far as the research and, and the historical perspective that we have. So spiritual gifting cannot be equal to spiritual maturity. We notice maturity through the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. I have beef with some continuous who would say, who would believe that the church is wrong if these uh, miraculous, what many call sign gifts, gifts of healing, prophecy, and tongues aren't present on a consistent basis within any specific given church. There are some who say the church is, you're doing it wrong as a church if I don't see these things present in my perception of your church. You're doing it wrong. It's another form of what the Corinthians were doing. The Corinthians were doing it within the church. Others look at other churches and do the exact same thing. You're not doing it right. You're not as spiritual. You're not as mature. You're not as this. You're not as that because I don't see these things present. It seems wrong to believe that every church should be, this is my perspective, it seems wrong to believe that every church should be operating in these specific spiritual gifts because hear me on this, in all of Paul's letter, this is the only time he actually gives any type of instruction or talks about speaking in tongues specifically, and he does it in 12 and 13 and 14. So there's three chapters in all of Paul's writings that we have that he actually even brings it up. Right? So there are some who make it a primary issue. There are some who make it a, 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 the, the primary thing that we are looking for, the primary question that we are asking that doesn't seem to be following the biblical pattern, in my opinion, from what I have seen. And my biggest beef with some continuous, and I think this is actually written in some Pentecostal doctrine statements, is that many would say that the primary sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is if you are speaking in tongues. Some would use the phrase, are you filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Right? And they believe that thus that gift is then uh, ready for anyone to have, and you should actually obtain this gift if you actually have the Holy Spirit. That you should tarry and wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and when he comes to you and fills you, then you will speak in tongues. I find that to be in direct contradiction with what Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read 28 through 30. He's using rhetorical questions to make, the, to make a specific point. Verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, 
then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. So he lists a variety of gifts that are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? What's his point? No. Everybody does not. That's his, that's his whole point in that part of the passage. So I want to so that's where continuous are at. That's where cessation is at. Here's where I want to tell you where I'm at. I consider myself cautiously charismatic. <laughs> cautiously charismatic. I like the phrase charismatic with a seatbelt. Okay. <laughs> charismatic with a seatbelt. I'm okay with being in the car. I'm okay with being in the car. But let's just use proper caution. Okay. So, that, so we just don't get reckless, right? So let's just use proper caution so we don't get reckless. I, I would say charismatic with a seatbelt. I believe prophecy exists today. I don't believe, it, I don't believe it, it exists in the same way as if, like with Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that when these guys spoke in their office, write it down, put it in the Bible, it's authoritative, don't question it, write it down, and preserve it for the rest of all human history. I don't believe that exists. I do believe there are still gifts of prophecies, specifically God giving people messages to, to communicate to others. So I don't, I don't believe if, you, if God is giving you a message, I don't believe you can go in and say, uh, this, thus saith the Lord, right? I believe that's done. I believe that's gone. Uh, and I don't believe that, that continues to exist. I do believe God can give someone something specific to give to another person or to another group of people. So I believe God does do that supernaturally today. I believe oftentimes maybe we don't experience that because we are closed off to it. I believe we should earnestly desire to seek God on how he might use us to encourage and instruct others in his church. And we submit that with humility to others who we feel God has called us to speak to. I believe we should look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, do not despise prophecies. Verse 21 says, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Don't despise it. Some reject anything that someone says God laid on their heart to tell them. Some people just reject it right off. I would consider that despising prophecies. Some receive anything anybody says is from the Lord, and they don't test it with the Word of God, partially because maybe we don't know the Word of God, because we haven't spent time studying the Word of God. I believe what we see here from Paul in 1 Thessalonians is you actually aren't equipped and able to deal with the gift of prophecy if you don't know the Word of God, because you can't test it. You can't test it to see if it's actually true if you don't know the book, if you don't know the text. I'm nervous about people, churches who are very um, excited about the operating in spiritual gifts, but it's like you don't, you don't know the Bible. You don't study the Bible. How are you going to test it? All you're left with is your feelings. That felt right to me. That felt wrong to me. Paul says test it. Don't despise it. Test everything. I hope you are critical with every word that I say on a Sunday, every Sunday. I hope you're thinking critically about it. I hope you're asking the question, is this actually Bible? Is this actually what the Bible is saying? For me and any other preacher that ever gets up and proclaims the word of God, I hope you're thinking critically about it every single time. Test everything, Paul says. As far as tongues, I do believe it continues to exist today. I believe interpretation of tongues, I treat it basically the same way I treat prophecy. Don't despise it. Test it. If I was to say my beef with Midtown too much, can I go there? 
I mean, I did cessationist and continuous. Can I go there? Can I, can I go here? Can I walk in these waters for a second? I'm strapped up. I got my belt on. I'm clicked in. I'm clicked in. Let me tell you my beef. I believe, in general, we are more closed off to um, what, what is the, the Greek word, the, the, the pneumatikos, as you would, the, the things that the Spirit does uh, than we should be. I believe we maybe have a sense of discomfort with, uh, okay, like the gift of administration, you feel like you can kind of control that, put that in the box, feel good about that? Um, but when you talk about prophecy and speaking in tongues and things of that nature, I believe there's a, maybe a fear of what might, it might look like. It's, it's one of the challenges when dealing with what the Holy Spirit does, right? It's like the Bible tells us what it is, what, uh, what the gift does. It doesn't always tell us what it looks like exactly, right? So this causes some, some, some challenges, some interpretive challenges, I think many of us have probably had bad experiences seeing people operating in, in gifts that weren't done in a biblical way. We'll get into all that more specifically next week. And I think we're closing ourselves off to what God might want to say to us. If we went back to verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there are two commands that are given in the passage that we read at the beginning. The first one is pursue love. I think these two commands are, are, are connected. The first one is pursue love. The second one is earnestly desire the spiritual gifts or the spiritual things or the things that the Spirit does, especially that you may prophesy. The Greek word that's translated earnestly desire there could also be, is at times, translated covet. It means to have an eager desire or, or a zealous desire for something. Paul gave a command that they would earnestly, zealously desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, Paul says. Have a strong zeal. Have an earnest desire. That's why three or four weeks ago, we were around us and we were talking about spiritual gifts. I emphasized the fact that the church has a mission and has opposition. That's why a little bit earlier in this sermon, I made the point that, hey, when God wants to move, when God, I heard one pastor say, when God wants to flex, he uses words to do it. When he wanted to create in Genesis, he used words. When he was ready to free his people out of Egypt, he used his words. When he wanted to, to direct his people in the Old Testament, he used words. He used his words. Paul, picking up on his theme of words in the Bible, says, earnestly desire what the Spirit does, especially prophecy, especially that he would give us words to speak to one another, to encourage, to console, and to edify one another, Paul says. It's a command. Earnestly desire it, want it, hope for it. I, I know we got some questions. I know we got some questions. I know we look, for some of us, I know we're unfamiliar. I know we don't know exactly maybe what it will look like. The, 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 he didn't even say to them prophesy every week. He said desire it, want it, crave it, desire that God would move in and through our church by speaking through us to one another. Desire it. Earnestly desire. God has been moving through his words literally since the beginning of creation. He sent us his word, revealed who he is to us. All of us who are Christians in the room have received his word, the living word, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. He continues to work through his word, through the written word in the Bible. And Paul says, eagerly desire the things that the Spirit does, especially prophecy. I believe those two commands go hand in hand with one another, specifically given the context and what church he's speaking to. He says, pursue love, 
right? They're using spiritual gifts for all different kinds of reasons for, 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 to achieve some type of status or whatever. And he says, earnestly desire the gifts, especially prophecy, especially that we might have words, receive words from God to give to others. I want to flip it and think of it backwards a little bit. If we understand how God uses his words, how important they are, how there is nothing more necessary for our souls than the very words of God himself, then how could we not desire that he would speak through us? If we truly love our brothers and sisters and want good for them, and we understand how powerful God's words are, how could we not eagerly desire that he would speak to us through us? Understanding that we have people in our church at all times who are struggling in our faith, who are just trying to continue on, who, who need encouragement, who, who are dealing with, with hopelessness. And we have a God who speaks to us, reveals himself, and get, reveals himself and gives us life in him through his words, through the living word, Jesus, through his written word, and also through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for you today. Thank you for how you have blessed us with your word, with your words. Father, if I'm right in this, if I'm, if I'm seeing this correctly, that we maybe despise prophecy, that we don't eagerly desire your, your, the work of your Holy Spirit in us, would you grant us repentance from that? Will you, will, you get, will you birth in us a desire to hear you speak through us? How amazing would that be, Father, if you just gave us words to give to each other for, for, for our growth, for our spiritual maturity, for our, for our transformation in the Lord, for our encouragement, so that we might all be edified and grow in unity together. Father, would you keep us from ever trying to glorify ourselves by trying to display what spiritual gifts that we have? Would you grant us humility and love? That any amount of pursuit or desire for spiritual gifts, any amount of use of spiritual gifts would be because we understand agape love and we want good for our brothers and sisters and for your church. We need you to work. It's in Christ's name I pray.